after the Lord appointed 72 others, he sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town or place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I have sent you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money back, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, they will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating, drinking, and providing. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town where they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town where they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet for a heat be wiped off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has to be. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day of Sodom than that town. Woe to you, Horizon, woe to you, Isaiah, from the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre, in sight, that we have repented long ago, sitting in Tyre. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the Spirit are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Lord, we pray that you would open your scriptures to us, that we would understand and that we would obey what they say. Help us to to get the sense of delight that things that are spoken to us today are special things, are things of blessing, things that many others have longed to hear and didn't. And yet, here we are, listening to you speak to us through your Spirit and your Word. 
Give us open hearts and minds to accept what you have for your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we consider this passage and talk about the mission of the church, mission of Christian fellowship, I think it would be helpful if we break it down into three parts, look under three headings. First, let's look at the commission. Secondly, look at the conditions. And lastly, at the correction. There's the commission, sending out. There's the conditions of what you are supposed to do as you go. And lastly, there's a correction, namely having to do with joy that they felt. Let's talk about the commission first. Look at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So maybe the first question we need to be asking is, what about this number, 72? Is that significant? Is it important that Jesus sends out 72 disciples on this mission? I think it is very important. I think this number is not random. It's not simply a number of the disciples who went out. First, this is more than 12. That's really important because a little bit before, Jesus sent out the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, to go and do essentially the same thing. Now he's sending out the 72. Not the 12, but the 72. And so at the very least, we have to look at that and say, this call, this commission, this, this mission to go into the world is not just for the apostles. It's not just for the clergy. It's not just for the missionaries. It's not just for the Bible teachers. It's not for the professional Christians. Other disciples are called to go and pursue Christ's mission in the world. There is a universal mandate on all Christians to participate in God's mission. Now secondly, this number 72 is important because it corresponds to the number of nations listed in Genesis 10. Now this is the kind of reference or an allusion that is easy to miss. And if you have a study Bible, and you should, it really helps. They usually point those things out. As you read those kind of passages, look at the study notes and see what they say. And most of the time they point out that connection. And the connection is clear that 72 is a symbolic number. It's the same number that is used in Genesis 10 when there's a description of all the nations who came from all the different different people uh, in, in, in Genesis. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's sending out many people to many nations of the world. Now, if, if you want to get really technical, uh, some of your Bibles and some manuscripts from which the Bible is translated would have 70 disciples and some would have 72. There's a discrepancy Scholars argue about it. Which one is the right number? Is it 70 disciples or 72? The ESV made a decision to translate 72. They think it's more accurate. Now, why is there such a description? Well, I think it's easily explained if you look at Genesis 10, because if you look at the Hebrew version of Genesis 10, it has 70. If you look at the Greek version of Genesis 10, it has 72. So depending on which version... Luke used, or some of the scribes used, they put the number that seemed appropriate and accurate to them. But the, the important part is that it corresponds to the number of nations in Genesis 10. So there's a universal mandate for all disciples to go into all the world. This is important. This is not just Jesus saying there's this, this select group of people, I'm going to send them out on this particular mission, they'll come back and they'll be done with it. 
He said, all disciples are sent into all of the world. Every Christian has a mandate to participate in God's mission. There's a universal feel to this commission. All Christians are sent out to all nations. Now, if you read Scripture, if you're a careful student of Scripture, you will see that this is a consistent theme all through the Bible. God calls His people to Himself, and then He sends them out on a mission to other nations. He calls them in, and then He sends them out. Over and over again, these encounters of people with God end up with Him sending them out on a particular mission, something that they have to do for Him that would benefit others. Uh, Dave, where the call of worship read Genesis 12, where Abraham is called. Abraham is called and promised that a great nation will come out of him, and that somehow through him other nations will be blessed. Not just that Abraham's name will be great, not just that he would find forgiveness and reconciliation with God himself and his family, but somehow what God is doing for him will spread onto other nations. So you see that God has drawn him in, sending him out. We see the same thing with Moses at the burning bush in in, uh, Exodus 3. God calls Moses. You remember that passage? He calls them. He calls him, and then he says, now you go and you talk to the Pharaoh so he would let my people go. So there's a drawing in and a sending out. You have to come and you have to go. And that's a normal experience of all people in Scripture. In the New Testament, we have the same thing. Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All Christians are sent into all the world. When God calls you, this is really important for us to understand, when God calls you to himself, he also sends you out to pursue his mission in the world. When God calls, he always sends. It's consistent in Scripture. Do you remember when Jesus calls disciples in the Gospels? What does he say? What's one thing that he frequently says? He says, follow me. Follow me. So the call to himself, the call of Jesus to himself, is the call to follow him. But Jesus isn't standing in place. He's, he's not marching in place. So this call to follow means that we are in motion with him. We're joining Jesus as he is going. We're not just coming to him and he stands and waits for us. We're catching up to him as he is going and pursuing the mission that his father gave him. You see, any true Christian, any true disciple, is drawn in and sent out. Are you a Christian? If you are a Christian, you have been drawn into God's presence, you have been given great blessings through the gospel, and you are also sent out. You are on a mission if you are a true Christian. You have come, but you're also going. You're pursuing God's mission. Now this is where it gets challenging for us, and I want to challenge you. If you are not going you must at least ask yourself the question of whether you have really come. If you're not going anywhere with Jesus, 
if you're not doing anything for Jesus, if you're not being missional, if you're not pursuing his mission in the world, perhaps you need to ask yourself the question of whether you have really come to him. Because what we see in Scripture, that anybody who comes to Jesus is also sent out. Anybody who comes, goes. There's no such thing in Scripture as somebody who just comes and stays. Or somebody who just goes but never has come to him. You see, those are two parts of his call. So if you do not see mission as necessary, as the normal part of your faith, I wonder if you have a good grasp on the gospel. You see, all this missional talk, and you hear, if you're, especially if you're in my circles, there's all this talk about being missional and living missionally and pursuing mission. All the churches now talk about it. And it's easy to say, well, this is a trend. This is something that the churches are doing now because they're hip, they need some kind of purpose. You know, young people like words like mission and community and stuff. So that's, what we're, that's why we're doing this. And maybe there's, there's a, a little bit of that. But really, it's part of the gospel. We've just rediscovered it. And it's good that we talk about mission. It's right that we talk about mission. And so for us, we need to embrace mission as part of the gospel, as part of our call. That same call that brings you to Jesus and brings you into all the benefits of Christ is also the same call that sends you out. The call that pushes you to go and serve others on behalf of Jesus. God is a missional God. It is clear in Scripture that God is a missional God. And so we must be missional people. Now we need to figure out what that mission is. Hopefully I've convinced you that mission is part of who you are as a Christian and you need to be committed to that, but what is that mission? What exactly are we supposed to be doing as we go, as we pursue this calling from Christ? I think our text is very helpful in that. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, Heal the sick in that town and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Now how has the kingdom, kingdom come near? Well, it's clear from the context that Jesus is about to enter that town. He sends them ahead of him. They go before him to prepare that town for the coming of Jesus. So when they say the kingdom is near, they might as well say the king is near. We're here on behalf of the king. He's coming. Get ready. Peace that comes through the king is coming to this town. Are you ready to accept it? That's their job. So in a sense, what they're doing is they're simply representing Jesus to the people around them. Verse 16 makes it even clearer. Jesus says, The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. They go before Jesus and they speak on behalf of Jesus. And if somebody rejects them, they reject the king. And the kingdom still comes to them, but it comes now in judgment. They've rejected the peace that the king brings, and now judgment remains on them. So our mission is really quite simple. We must represent Christ, we speak his words, and we do his works. Jesus healed, so we heal. Jesus helped people, so we help people. Jesus addressed specific needs, so we address specific needs. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, so do we preach the gospel of the kingdom. We only do what Jesus does, and we only say what Jesus has said. 
So our mission on that level is very simple to grasp. We go as representative of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, Paul calls us Christ's ambassadors. We're ambassadors of Christ. We are representing him. We are the visible expression of who Jesus is and what he says and what he has done to other people around us. As I already mentioned, you cannot have Jesus without his mission. You can't be a Christian without being on mission for him. But you also cannot have mission without Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are a missionary. But you can't be a missionary in the true sense of the word if you're not a Christian, if you don't have Jesus. Proximity to unbelievers is not the same as missional living. That comes as a correction to some of us. Because some of us, we just think it's enough just to be with unbelievers. When we, we talk about missional living, we just say, oh, we just need to be with sinners. We just need to be with them. That's not missional living. If you're not doing the works of Christ, and if you're not speaking the words of Christ to the people you're with, simple proximity to them does nothing. We represent in Jesus. So we speak on his behalf. We act on his behalf. Jesus' words and works are extended through his people into all of the world. I hope this challenges us today to think about our faith in those terms. If you have been called, you've also been sent out. If you're a Christian, you're a person with a mission. Is that how you think about your Christianity? Or are you all too happy just to be called to Jesus? Just to have come to Him and see nothing beyond that? Or at best you see whatever else may come as optional, as a choice to be made according to your circumstances, if you're available. That's not how Scripture sees it. That is not the call of the Gospel. The call of the Gospel is you come to Jesus and you go on His behalf. That's biblical Christianity. We may fool ourselves thinking there's other expressions we can embrace, but they're not legitimate, they're not biblical. So we need to see ourselves as people who have been called, who have come to Jesus, and people who have also been sent, who go from Jesus. Now, as Jesus sends us out, this, this caught my attention in this passage, he lays out conditions. He tells us what we should do and we shouldn't do as we go and pursue this mission. I find that some of these conditions are rather surprising. That is, they're surprising if we don't see them in light of the gospel. Let's look at some of these conditions. Just kind of run through these. Verse 2, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He's sending them out, but he says, you're understaffed. There's just not enough people to do the job I'm giving you to do. So as you go and as you do the work, make sure you're also recruiting and praying for other people. Because you just can't, so you just simply can't do what I'm calling you to do because you don't have enough people. There's just not enough people power to be able to accomplish this mission. So he's sending them out deliberately understaffed. Verse 3, go your way, Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is not very inspiring. If somebody is sending you out on a mission and they tell you, you're going to go completely unprotected and you're probably going to get eaten up because you go as a lamb among wolves. Lambs do not fight back. 
But Jesus says, that's how you're going out. You're going out in this tremendous humility. There's no security. There's no safety. There's no protection. You're going out among violent and abusive and people who can easily reject you and easily hurt you. That's our mission. That's how he sends you out. You see, Christians are frequently persecuted, and yet we never persecute anyone ourselves. But we should, according to this text. Verse 4, this is getting worse. Jesus says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Those are the three things I always have with me whenever I go. Extra pair of flip-flops, I have my knapsack, and a money bag. Right? You too? Jesus says, don't bring anything extra. This is what this means. He says, don't bring anything that you don't have on you that you absolutely have, need to have. He's saying, don't bring a change of clothes. Don't bring a change of, of, of your shoes. Don't bring any money with you. Don't bring anything that you can put extra stuff in. So no backpacks, no briefcases, no luggage. Let's just go with what you have on and trust that somehow you will be provided for whatever needs might, might arise later. Resources are severely limited as Jesus is sending people out. So you're understaffed. You're going out into this tremendous danger without any protection. You can't take anything with you that you might need in the future. No money, nothing, no resources. Everything is limited. And then verse 8, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is said before you. Don't be picky, he says. Whatever they give you, eat it. You can't, don't go from house to house looking for a better meal or better accommodations. Just whatever they give you, eat, and that will be enough for you. Verse 10. Whenever you enter a town and, do not, and they do not receive you, go into its streets, or really what that means is go into the public square, whatever the downtown area where people gather. So it's a public act. And say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Jesus is saying, prepare that at least some of the people you're going to, maybe most of the people you're going to, will not receive you. They will reject you and you will have to pronounce judgment on them. Rejection is a common experience for those who join God's mission. Now, these are the conditions. Are you surprised at that? Jesus says, go into all the world, preach the gospel, heal the sick. You will likely get rejected. You will likely have to tell them they're going to be judged. You will have no resources that you can take with you. You'll have no protection. You will not even have enough staff, enough people to do what you're supposed to do. And that's how you're going to accomplish my mission. Now, if the disciples had a union, if they unionized, these conditions would be a good reason to strike. Right? They should have turned around and said, we're going on strike and you can talk to our boss which would probably be Peter, I think, if they unionized. About, is that, it's a union joke. Is this too soon? Maybe it's too soon. I don't know. We'll get a lot of response here. Okay, so seriously, why doesn't Jesus say, go in groups of 20, right, so they can't easily beat you up, take lots of money, so you can buy your own food and get a decent, decent hotel accommodations, dress well, make sure you, you look presentable, Get some good communications training so you can convince almost everyone to accept the gospel. Why doesn't he set it up like that? Why does he deliberately limit their effectiveness and limit their influence right from the start? It sounds like he's sabotaging his own mission. 
It sounds like he's saying, I'm not going to give you what you need so you can accomplish what I'm, what I'm telling you to do. Why send them out without any resources, protection, support staff, financial backing, etc.? Well, you remember what the mission is? This is where we have to remind yourself what the mission actually is. The mission is to represent Jesus. The mission is to speak his work, words and to do his works. He is the king who comes near and brings the kingdom with him. It's not us. Now, that is true. If the, if the mission is to highlight Jesus and to put him in front and to make sure that people connect with him and not with us and that they hear his words and they experience his acts, if that's the mission, then it follows that the, least, the less influential, the less powerful, the less saved, the less prepared, the less important we are, the better. Doesn't it make sense? If your mission is to focus on Jesus so that it's his power that works, it makes sense that we have very little power as we go. If we would like to make him presentable, it makes sense that we don't distract from him by being presentable ourselves. Doesn't it make sense that this is the only way that this mission could be accomplished? Is If we go understaffed, without protection, without resources, in small groups, in the gospel, this logic makes sense. And if we understand what the mission is, this is the only way to go about it. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. If that's our mindset, then yes, we go without resources, we go without money, we go without clothes, we go without shoes and knapsacks and things like that because we are servants. All we're doing is just pointing to Jesus whom people need to see and hear and accept and honor as their king. And so we need to be the least presentable, the least powerful, the least influential, the least trained so that Jesus could be presented as the king who comes to bring peace to them. You see, the missionary should never eclipse the mission. I was listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg a couple of days ago, and one thing really stuck with me. I think I've shared that, that quote with a couple, couple of you during the week as I met with some of you. Um, he said, If dependence is the objective, Weakness is an advantage. If dependence is the objective, weakness is an advantage. In other words, if the point of our life is to learn to rely on Jesus, if that's the point, is to learn to trust him, learn to depend on him, then our weakness is of tremendous help to us. Because if we're strong, it would be so much harder to rely on him. Now, does that change your perspective on suffering as you are struggling and you think, why is God doing this? Think about the objective. What is God's objective? He wants to bring your life in line with His. He wants you to depend on Him. He wants you to realize that His resources are better than your resources. So it makes sense that you would be weak, that you would be struggling, that you would get sick, that you would get hurt, that bad things would happen to you because what God is doing 
is simply teaching you to depend on him. And that's the ultimate objective. So if we think about our mission in the same, in the same light, same principle applies. If the objective is to lift Jesus up in our mission, then whatever brings us down is an advantage, right? If we want to shine the light on Jesus, then we better stay in the shadows. We better not do things that are spectacular ourselves so Jesus can do those things. We better not appear to be powerful and resourceful and smart and educated and trained so that Jesus could be all those things to people. I'm afraid that this principle is often ignored by many Christians today, perhaps even by us in this church. Our missional involvement is often determined by our budget, by our education, by assessment interviews, by careful planning. And so the world looks at our efforts and mission, and by mission I mean anything you do for the Lord, any kind of ministry. The world looks at it and says, sure, Christians have made progress. Sure, they have succeeded. Look at how much money they're spending. Look at how many staff they employ. Look at all the lawyers protecting them. Look at their brand new beautiful buildings and expansive parking lots. If, if that's what the world sees, who are they looking at? They're looking at us. And maybe they can get through us to Jesus. That's questionable. But if we're coming in with power, we're coming in with money, we're coming in with careful planning, that's what the world is going to see. They're going to think that we are the mission, not Jesus. They're going to think that we are the kingdom, not Jesus. This is an important principle for us to relearn, that we go in weakness so Jesus could accomplish his mission. Now, you look at our new ministry, reaching families with special needs. Do you feel like our church doesn't have what we need to reach the special needs community? Do you think we need more money, more people, more training? Good. It's good that you think that. It's true. We do need all of those things. But that is exactly the state we should be in as we pursue this mission. That's exactly right. In the gospel logic, it makes perfect sense. We, we're going into this saying, how are we going to staff everything? We don't have enough people. We're going into it thinking, how can we pay certain bills? How can we buy certain things? We go into it thinking, man, we don't know what we're doing. We need more training. But that's right. Because as we do that, as we go in weakness, God will show himself strong. Because this is not our mission. We're simply sent by God. But he is the point of the mission. And so going into Weakness into those kind of things is right. It's right for us to do that. So rejoice that we're doing it in the right way. We're pursuing God's mission with little resources and questionable planning skills and, and bad communication sometimes. doesn't mean we can't work on those things, but there's something that is gospel about it. There's something that is just rings true to us. So we're going into it thinking that God will have to provide. God will have to glorify himself. God will have to bring the right people to us so we can minister to them. If dependence is the objective, 
weakness is an advantage. Now, one last thing we need to say about this passage, very important thing. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on that. There's a correction that comes. Jesus has commissioned them. He sent them out. He's given them conditions. And now he corrects them. Must have been an exciting, exhilarating time for the 72. You know, they got to participate in God's mission, and in spite of all that they lacked, you know, going with nothing, they saw God do great things through them. Now imagine, demons obeyed at the mention of the name of Jesus. They just say Jesus, and demons are cast out, and people are healed. There are people who just repent and believe the gospel and are given new lives. They experienced all of that. And now they have come back. And they've come back really excited. They've come back happy and giddy and drunk with success. They're saying, Jesus, look at this. Even demons obey us. Even demons are subject to us. We can cast out demons. This has made a big impression on them. How does Jesus respond to that? He says, verse 20, Do not rejoice in this. They are rejoicing in this. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, it's nice that you saw some success, some miraculous things happened in your ministry, but watch yourselves. There's a correction. There's a warning. Do not put your joy in that. Your joy should come from the fact that your names are written in heaven. Your joy comes from your total acceptance with God forever. This is a crucial difference because it's easy for us, those of us who have tasted any success in ministry, anything at all, it's so easy to get excited about. It's so easy just to start thinking about yourself and how well you've done in that situation. And maybe you have experienced that. Maybe at your job, because you're a Christian, you just seem to be doing things well and you have certain skills from God that you just progress and you get promoted. Maybe, maybe as you're talking to your neighbor, your neighbor becomes a Christian. It's an, it's an exhilarating thing when that happens. And as you're doing that, as you're seeing God work through you, as you're seeing these this huge things seemingly under your control, it's easy to, to rejoice in that or take joy in that. But God says, Jesus says, don't do that. Don't place your joy in your success in ministry or in life. He says, place your joy in the fact that eternally, through Jesus, you have been reconciled to God. And that can't change. You see, this, this is the old way to explain the gospel. Many preachers would say, all religions tell you that you have to do something so God would love you and accept you. But only Christianity says that God has done something already and you are already loved, and you are already accepted no matter what you do. This is a tremendous difference. That, that's where the gospel is different from anything else you might hear in the world. Because any other religion will tell you, fulfill God's mission first, and then God will honor you by forgiving you, by blessing you, by accepting you, by putting your name in his book in heaven. That's how everybody explains it. Isn't that true? You get to heaven... The book is open, they look at your works, they weigh on the, on the scales, and they say, well, if you did more good works, if your mission for God has been more successful than not, you get in, and now we write your name in. That's not the gospel. 
The gospel says that God has already loved you. He's already chosen you. He's already paid for your sins. He's already provided for your reconciliation. He's already forgiven you. He's already accepted you. And that is a total acceptance. And it is an eternal acceptance. And that cannot change because God himself did that and God doesn't change. And if you know that, doesn't it free you up to be on mission for God? When you say, I'm not doing that to gain acceptance and to earn brownie points with God. I'm doing that out of that deep sense of security and joy that God loves me and he has provided everything I need to be accepted with him forever. That's what Jesus is doing himself. After he says this, he turns around and he rejoices in the Holy Spirit. He's actually modeling the same joy that he's telling the disciples to have. He's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. And he says, only the Father knows me and I know the Father. What is he talking about? He's talking about a special relationship. A special relationship of acceptance and relational knowledge that he has within the Trinity with the Spirit and the Father. And he's saying, that is what we are to rejoice as well. That's what we look and we say, I have been welcomed into the Trinitarian community of God. This is a mind-blowing truth that the glory that Jesus has is shared with us, that the fellowship that Jesus has with the Father is shared with us. We have become partakers of divine nature. Those are not empty words in Scripture. It's not because it just sounds good spiritually. Those are realities, that through the Gospel we have been welcomed into this place of acceptance and love and deep security in Him. So when you go on your mission and you go without money, and you go without people, and you go unprotected, and you go into dangerous places. What drives you? What keeps you sane in those situations? It's knowledge. It's knowledge that God loves you, and God has accepted you, and that God has chosen you forever. That's what anchors you. That's what drives you. You may succeed. You may fail. You may be the guy who comes to, to town and finds that son of peace, finds the person who accepts the gospel, embraces it, and the whole town becomes Christian. You might, you might go into places where there are needs of people that you can meet and you can meet them well, and there's huge success. Or you may be the other person who comes and nobody responds. And everybody hates you. Everybody rejects you. And what do you do? You shake the dust off your feet. But because you have anchored yourself, your identity is anchored in the gospel, in the acceptance of God, you can do either. You won't be crushed by failure, nor would you be arrogant because of your success. That's what the gospel does to us. If the mission of God is all about reconciling the world to himself and Jesus, shouldn't our greatest joy be that we are reconciled to him? If the point is to proclaim the gospel, should we not rejoice in the gospel? Shouldn't that be our greatest joy? We cannot be missional without being rooted in God's total acceptance of us through Jesus. Do not place your identity in your success or your failure. And let me just extend this and expand this into all areas of your life. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing professionally, whatever you're doing relationally, do not place your identity in success or failure or whatever you're doing. 
That's not where you are to live. That's not where your soul is to live. You live in the gospel. You live in the total acceptance of God through Christ because Jesus died and rose for you. And because all those benefits that Jesus has have been given to you freely by grace and you have simply accepted them by faith. And if that is true, that's real for you, you can handle failure and success. Root yourself in the gospel. Remind yourself constantly that God has totally accepted you and eternally loved you in Jesus. Now that is what we do every Sunday when we come to the table. That is exactly what we're doing. We come to the table to remind ourselves that we have been completely accepted by God through Christ. We come to the table and we see his body broken, his blood spilled, we see the new covenant symbolically laid out in front of us, and we just embrace it again, we remind ourselves again. We say, I will rejoice in this. That's my greatest joy. I'm going to root myself in the fundamental acceptance of God. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. It's enough. And you come to the table rejoicing what God has done for you. Let's pray. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.